Hours after Shota Imanaga was announced to be signed with the Chicago Cubs, the terms of the contract started to surface. We're going to talk about the doors that this opens for the Cubs in this year and the years coming up. And Setup Nation, before we do start, I just want to point out what just popped up right here. It's the subscribe and comment button. Please do that because the more that you engage with our content, the more other Cubs fans get to see it too. So let's jump into the details of this deal. Now, there's still a ton of questions surrounding the terms. We've actually heard $30 million guaranteed at two years and that can grow to four years at $60 million with bonuses that can get up to $80 million? This seems very complicated. In fact, that's exactly what Jim Bowden said. According to the club's source, Cubs deal with Imanaga something close to two years, 30, can grow to four years, 60, and can even reach $80 million with multiple opt-outs. Deal is very complicated. Very complicated. Player team options, escalators, etc. But that's the general ballpark agreement. That's a new one. Haven't ever heard of a contract growing in terms of the number of years, but we will see the final details when they come out. Is this potentially, though, how they were able to land this bargain deal? 15 million AAV is really nothing in this market considering what Yamamoto just signed for. Now, Imanaga is not an ace or the potential of an ace like Yamamoto. However, after that kind of deal, you would have expected something along the lines of $20 million per year. But maybe this is how the Cubs were able to get this deal done at a bargain deal because the Giants and Red Sox, let's just assume that they were offering five years, $85 million, but he saw an opportunity to potentially, with escalators, get to $80 million in four years. That's all that we can guess right now until we actually see the full details. And this is almost a Dodger type of deal where it's keeping a low AAV and it's not deferring any of the money, but it has a ton of escalators that could potentially help the Cubs make more moves here in 2024. Before we do talk about that, let's take a look at the current rotation. So the way this shapes up, you've got Shota Imanaga. I would say lefty-righty-lefty. He's going to be at number three to start the season. Justin Steele is still your ace and workhorse. Jamison Tylon, I put him at number two just for the fact of his final 15 starts of the year. He had a 3.38 ERA as opposed to his first 14 starts of the year of 5.14 ERA. Then the veteran Kyle Hendricks, and then some sort of combination of Jordan Wicks or Javier Assad. Assad in his final nine starts of the season last year had a 284 ERA, but if Assad is in the bullpen, you have a great high leverage guy or multi-inning shutdown weapon, just like what he was in 2023. It's unsure that Imanaga will provide more value than Marcus Stroman, given that he has never thrown a pitch in the majors. But Stroman's time with the Cubs was a tale of two pitchers. His first nine starts of 2022 came with a 532 ERA. Then his final 16 starts of that season, he had a 256 ERA. In 2023, it was actually the opposite. His first 16 starts, he looked like a Cy Young candidate with a 228 ERA, but then he imploded in his final 11 games at an 829 ERA. Yikes. If Imanaga can bring more consistency and sustain a mid-3 ERA, say 150 to 160 innings pitch, you feel pretty good about that being an upgrade from Stroman. If that is the case, is this a starting rotation that scares you? Not necessarily in the playoffs, but it is one that can get you to the playoffs. 
Now, I'd like to get to the payroll picture and potential additional moves in a bit, but before I do, there is a potential benefit to this move that I'm interested to see in the long run. This makes the Cubs and the Dodgers the only two active teams to currently have multiple Japanese players on their roster. Believe it or not, Shota is only the 10th active Japanese-born player in the MLB as we stand today. And he is the third Japanese player to sign this offseason. And by the way, there are two more up for MLB free agency. So it's been a large influx this offseason. And if that trend continues, could this be a competitive advantage for the Cubs in future seasons? One of the largest issues for Japanese players is the language, cultural, and competitive transition. Sure, Ichiro Suzuki, Hideki Matsui, Shohei Otani, they've all had great careers or continue to have great careers in Shohei's case. But what about the guys like Kosuke Fukudome? Sorry, Cubs fans, I don't mean to bring that up again. Daisuke Matsuzaka and a few others. Despite all the hype, they never amounted to much in the majors. And a little closer to home, currently Seiya Suzuki. It took him nearly one and a half seasons to finally figure things out. He had a very, very average first season with an OPS under 800 and only hit 14 home runs. And after a truly horrible first half of 2023, he finally got comfortable in the dugout and was one of the best hitters in the majors in the final two months of the season. The numbers were unreal. In 50 games, a 350 batting average, 12 bombs, 39 runs driven in, a 406 on base percentage, 667 slugging, and that equates to an OPS just under 1,100, all while only striking out 17% of his plate appearances. That's the kind of Seiya Suzuki that the Cubs want to see for years and years to come. But will it take Imanaga a year and a half to get settled in like Suzuki? This is one of the biggest issues for Japanese players right now. Not only do they play against guys who are throwing harder, hitting harder, playing more often, seeing the same teams a lot less often as there's 30 teams here in the MLB, only 12 teams in the MPB. But add on to that, the food is different, the fans are different, the cities are different, the language is different. I'm sure this transition can be both difficult and lonely for guys coming to the US and Canada. So with that said, do the Cubs have a competitive advantage for players coming from Japan? Can Seiya Suzuki help Shota Imanaga adjust faster? Can his learning curve be cut down dramatically from the help of a teammate who has already gone through exactly what he's about to go through? I would think so. That's what a teacher does. And if that is a successful test, then who's to say the Cubs won't have a strong selling point for bringing in more highly sought after talent from Japan? After all, Yamamoto did sign with the Dodgers after Otani did. He claims that he was going to sign with the Dodgers no matter if Otani played there or not, but do we really know that for sure? I guess we'll see in the coming years if this truly does give the Cubs a competitive advantage. Now let's get to payroll. So assuming the average annual value is right around the estimated $15 million that has been discussed, where does that put the Cubs for payroll? In case you didn't know, payroll isn't actually cut and dry simple math. There are taxes, there are pensions, there are bonuses, there's reserves that all get added into this payroll. So the best guess out there from all of the Googling that I did seemed to be Al Yellon with SB Nation. Hopefully I'm saying your name correctly, Al. In early November, he calculated the payroll for the Cubs to be right around $195 million. If that is correct, that now puts the Cubs at $210 million with the addition of Imanaga. Now that's $27 million before the first luxury tax threshold of $237 million. Do we see 
the front office exceeding this? That is the $237 million question. My answer, yes, absolutely. By how much? I don't know exactly, but I would highly doubt that they go over $250 million. I doubt this right now because there are times when you know it's time to go all in, and there are times when you know it's just really time to add pieces. Right now, the Cubs seem to be doing the latter. The likelihood of them being a World Series contender in 2024 is not very high right now, so why spend all your money now when you still want to see how some prospects pan out? So assuming they have right around 30 to $40 million to play with before that 250 mil, I can see a number of different scenarios happening. Let's start with the first. Cody Bellinger and Reese Hoskins sign. Bellinger gets a longer-term deal at 25 AAV, and Hoskins gets a one-year prove-it deal at 15 million. There's your 40 call it good there, and you would have a very, very deep lineup from top to bottom, and really, the only spot that's still a gray area is third base. The next option, Bellinger plus a trade for starting pitcher Shane Bieber. My guess is that the acquisition of Imanaga is at the forefront for the Cubs, and now that they have their guy, they could be okay with the starting rotation the way that it stands, and Cade Horton could give them that nice boost around May or June, but with all the additional prospects the Cubs have, I'd be shocked if they don't make a trade before the season starts. So why not Bieber? Number three, Cody Bellinger plus a number two or three starter and a Black Friday bullpen discount arm. This Imanaga signing shows that it's probably the end of the era for Marcus Stroman in a Cubs uniform. And with only about $15 million to play with, I doubt Stroman will come in at that AAV. But what about a guy like Mike Clevenger? Maybe James Paxson or... How about Michael Lorenzen? All are established big leaguers who are past their prime and likely going to come in on a two-year deal with an AAV lower than Imanaga, and that gives the Cubs a few million left over to still get a bullpen arm. It's easy to see them do the same thing they have in the past, add an arm that's coming off of a down year or an injury, and get that Black Friday discount to potentially make them a stud again. While Liam Hendricks does come to mind, I'm not sure that he'll accept an AAV quite that low, but... I've seen Stranger Things. Number four, Bellinger plus two great bullpen arms. There is still a lot of legitimate bullpen help out there. Hicks, Stevenson, Moore, Brazier, all of these guys will probably command an AAV around minimum five, but likely seven to nine, maybe $10 million each. And with the epic September collapse from last year's bullpen, you could easily see Jed attempt to make that a strength before we break for spring training. Number five, Reese Hoskins, Matt Chapman, and a bullpen arm. If the Cubs don't get Bellinger, then you can talk about them getting Hoskins at 15, Chapman at right around 18 to 20, and one of the aforementioned bullpen arms to make sizable improvements to three necessary spots on this team. And as much as the Cubs have been linked to Boris clients this offseason, who's to say they don't land two of them with Hoskins and Chapman? In fact, on January 10th, John Heyman went live saying that the Cubs will land one of the three Boris clients between Bellinger, Chapman, and Hoskins for sure and may potentially have a chance for two. I would assume Chapman would have a great bounce back season as well, given his metrics were much better than his season showed. And last scenario and least favorite is just Hoskins plus a bullpen arm. This would be an attempt to improve the team in a couple areas while leaving room for more acquisitions during the trade deadline or potentially in the 2024-25 offseason. And if you're like me and you want Cody Bellinger back on this team, you're going to love this next video where I talk about is Cody Bellinger truly the best fit for the Chicago Cubs in 2024 and beyond. Click it right here as it just showed up on your screen.